When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We're joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul, Mission Control Deck, and most importantly, you are you, you are here. And that makes this the stuff they don't want you to know. Uh... Today's conversation is much more than a spoonful of sugar, but we should start out by saying, I know, I know, no pun left behind, uh, that sugar is amazing, and a lot of the stuff about sugar that people don't know is frankly terrifying. We've all been there every few months, it seems, for instance, a study comes out arguing for or against some aspect of sugar consumption, usually focused on a person's individual health, and in the U.S., as Many people have pointed out, it seems like sugar is in almost everything, and uh, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. It's fraught with injustice and corruption. We're learning this today in a conversation with an expert in this disturbing story. The journalist, the author, the creator of the new podcast, Big Sugar, as well as a podcast called Freeway Phantom, Celeste Headley. Celeste, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Good to be here. Just so you know, Celeste, I, I think we've had this conversation before, uh, but for the three hosts of this podcast, we listened to a lot of NPR, especially back in the day when we were working in Buckhead, and uh, we we listened to you a lot, so uh, it's very cool to have you with us. Oh, thanks. That's really kind. It's funny, actually. My background is with public radio, with Georgia Public Broadcasting, and I don't know if we ever interfaced directly, but I worked with a lot of the same folks that, that you did back in the day, and I think we may have like shared a news call once in a while. <laughs> 
they go. So broadcasting is a is a deceptively small world. It is, it is a very. I, I try to tell people who are just coming into it, like straight out of college. You know, don't be mean to people because oh, no. you are going to be seeing them again and again mm, and again. Just very, <laughs> so, very true. And, so let's get into it. As as we said, you are a veteran journalist, um, you're a prolific author. You have hosted EP multiple pre- prestigious programs, like what? Retro Report on PBS, On Second Thought, of course, The Takeaway, and more. So for any fellow conspiracy realists tuning in saying, hey, that's a very familiar voice, yep. there's a reason you're feeling that. Uh, so You've you've written books like We Need to Talk, How to Have Conversations That Matter, Do Nothing, uh, and of course, Speaking of Race, Why Everybody Needs to Talk About Racism and How to Do It. These are deep dives into the nature of communication and connection. And that's something, maybe we start there, because that's something that stands out, to me at least, in Big Sugar, because you're diving deep into the history and the and the troubling present of the sugar industry. You're examining aspects of it that, honestly, sugar companies probably don't want the public to know, but there's a humanness to it. You know, there's um, it's so easy to for our minds to gloss over when we hear abstract stats and numbers. Uh, but this show is very personal. And it's very human, uh, which is something I love about it. So maybe we start at that human moment. Was there something that initially inspired your journey into the disturbing side of this industry? Like you mentioned you went sugar-free for a time. Uh, you also said, um, you know, that's where you learn sugar is and everything. But I, I'm just wondering, was there like an aha moment or an epiphany? Yeah, I think, um, so look, you know, as you said, I've been a journalist for a long time, and I get that the average person does not have the time to follow all the stories that they technically should, right? Like, everybody doesn't have the time to know everything about all the chemicals that are in all all of our foods or all of the industries that affect us every day. I, I totally understand that. But every once in a while, things bubble up and become so urgent and important that it's time to pay attention. And sugar is one of those, like it's time. Um, and for me, that's the thing that sort of came across my desk. Like I began when we started doing the interviews for this and I started listening to the the stories of these cutters, these Jamaican cutters who had come over there and, and cut the sugar cane by hand. Um, power and Fidel, if you're a uh, a listener of the show. (laughs) And this is a brutal, brutal job. I mean, they're using machetes. I don't know how many people have ever actually put their hands on a on a cane of an, on sugar cane. It is thick. It is tough. It is. It's like a piece of wood, and to be sitting there whacking at the sugar cane all day long with this razor sharp machete. They wear pieces of of chain mail to try to protect themselves. At the same time, they're still sometimes make mistakes, of course, and and cut themselves, cut off pieces of their fingers and bodies and hurt themselves. They're in brutal heat and humidity. They barely get fed. Sometimes they just get a bowl of rice. Um, to hear that this is what they were going through to get the sugar onto our tables and then the sugar industry, the sugar barons still stole their wages from them. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's why I... I went sugar free because I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't, I didn't want to eat it. Like I, I couldn't do it. I, I was like, I, it just lost its taste for me. 
It's so interesting how like it's one of the few crops, I guess, that there there hasn't really been a modernization to the way that it's harvested. You know, like there's really no magic bullet or like, you know, kind of machinery that can do it. And you have to have this human aspect to it. And then just to follow up, you know, these folks that are coming in from Jamaica, they're coming in from Jamaica because the job is so dangerous and difficult that that these, these companies can't find Americans to do it. So they do, they have mechanized. Since this case, this uh, uh, class action suit, in the United States at least, they now have mechanized the harvesting of cane. Um, It is still harvested by hand in many other places of the world. The reason they were continuing to do it by hand is that they can, the the human cutters can get as far to the ground as possible, meaning you get more of the cane, right? Without pulling it out, right? Exactly. but they still, because it's cheaper, they still burn the cane fields uh, when the harvest is over, meaning it's an ecological disaster every single year. We went down to these cane fields um, to experience it for ourselves. We parked in the parking lot of an elementary school um, and they were burning the cane fields. And as soon as we got out of the car, I was covered in this thick, greasy ash um, and I looked to the, the playground and all of the the playground um, toys and the merry-go-round and stuff were covered in this ash. Like apocalyptic kind yeah, of scene. It is. Yeah. It is. It looks like the beginning of Terminator. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, so they only did that here in the States because of that class action lawsuit where the cane cutters were trying to get back the wages that had, were taken from them. So, yeah, it's it's just this. I mean, to think that. We in the United States, this is this is the way we, we brought these these workers over from Jamaica <laughs> to have them cut the sugar cane down from us. And this is the way we treated them. Like this was their American experience. And this was the 80s and the 90s. Uh, yeah. Meaning that, again, pa- the past is far more recent than it looks in the rearview mirror. I'd love to talk a little more about those workers. Uh, one thing that I really respect here is episode one of Big Sugar, like from the jump, we're diving into these stories. And for people who are not familiar with the sugar industry, you know, other than like their their pack of uh, Domino sugar they get at the grocery store, for people who are unfamiliar with how this is made, it's a harsh awakening. Like, could you tell us a little bit about why cane cutting is so often called the hardest job in America. You've alluded to some of this, like the medieval chain mail, the the idea that uh, these guys sometimes refer to cane cutting as going to war. But what does the average person need to know about this profession as it was then? Yeah, again, a a, a stock of sugar cane is incredibly thick. Like if you've ever had a piece of bamboo, like the bamboo you see like in your grocery store, if you get like a little mm-hmm. piece of bamboo, that's that's not what it looks like. Like bamboo that maybe a panda bear snacks on, it's, right. it's thick wood. Like it is thick and hard and it takes like serious strength. They would, in order to, um, before these workers were given the go-ahead to be to be shipped to the United States to work here, they were given incredibly intrusive physical exams. They stripped them naked. They peered into every corner of their body to make sure that they were physically capable of doing so. And even then, many of them did not 
make it through a season. Um, it is brutal work because cutting this cane, they would have, they would grab it with their, with their arm and with the other arm, they would slash down with this machete to try to cut through and it takes power, uh, in your body in order to make it through this cane. And again, it is very hot. And the leaves themselves, these are, they have these leafy fronds coming off there. They, they kind of slash and you will get, um, little slashes in your arms, little cuts, um, in your arms as you're going through the cane. It's, it's, um, planted very close together. Um, if you've ever been in a cornfield, for example, you can get lost in a cornfield quite, quite easily. It's very much the same thing. And you're just all day long for hour after hour after hour going down these rows of cane and just methodically grabbing cane and cutting and grabbing and cane and cutting and throwing. And when I say throwing, these, these canes weigh a lot. Um, it is just, and then you look at the dorms in which they were living and they were, I'm lost for words. I'm literally a writer and journalist and have been for 25 years. And I, I don't even know how to describe the, the places in which they were living in which sometimes the places were in which they were relieving themselves were holes in concrete. It's like slave quarters. I mean, let's be, yeah. be honest. I mean, that's practically what it is. Yeah. Well, let, let's talk about what the, like what an individual worker perhaps thought they were getting into before they left, right? Before they left for Jamaica. It sounded like to me in the podcast, very similar to something we just covered, fishermen in Thailand, where they were sometimes coerced onto a ship under false pretenses of what the job's going to be, what their life's going to be like. Uh, just a job opportunity, right? As it's sold to workers often. Only uh, in this case with, with again, I, I'm using the names Power and Fidel. That's their like nicknames. Um, but when, they, when they're told they're going to go get this job in America to do this thing, what that was like versus when they actually arrived in Palm Beach and met for the first time the people in charge. Yeah, you know, there's two different levels here because the people that, that uh, they're told that they're going to be paid well. They are sold this idea that they are going to be able to send home to their families real money. And um, at the time, uh, Jamaica was desperately poor. And I don't need to go into the colonial history of why Jamaica was desperately poor. Most people who are aware of colonial history probably know that. Um, so uh, the money that they thought they were going to be making under the H1N1 visa was going to be well worth it, um, regardless of what conditions they were going to be working under. So the people who were very first going, there was maybe this is their first trip to the United States to work under these conditions. You're absolutely correct. Maybe they didn't realize what they were getting into. The thing was is that there were people who went back again and again and again, even though they knew what they were getting into because things were so desperately poor in Jamaica that they continued to sacrifice. However, they would not tell their families when you read the letters that they were writing back home to their families, they didn't tell their families what they were enduring often back in the United States. Because they didn't um, want them to spend, you know, all their days worrying, you know, are you yeah. going to come back with all your fingers? Are you going right. to come back at all? That's right. And they would be constantly threatened that if they didn't work um, hard enough, if they didn't pick up the pace, they would be deported. Because these employers had the the power to 
to send them back to Jamaica to make them to not only lose their jobs, but send them out of the country immediately. That's what that visa meant. Um, and so they were constantly in fear of being deported out of the United States. Um, but, you know, the money they were making here was still better than what they had back in Jamaica at the time in the, in the 80s and 90s. And that's even minus the uh, what do we call it? The company store mentality, right? Like these guys are charged for transit, room, and board. That comes out before they ever see uh, a cent in a paycheck that actually goes to them, uh, which which could be doable. Other jobs do that uh, so long as you can predict what you're actually being paid, right? That's the key piece. Yeah, you know, th- th- I, I have to, there's no way to, to say this for sure. I can't as a journalist uh, confirm this, uh, but it appears as though the payment system was purposely obtuse. It was confusing the way that things were being paid. In other words, there was a confusing system of were they being paid by the ton? Were they being paid by the hour? They were supposed to be paid by a certain system under the visa system. But when you actually looked at their hourly sheets, it was being paid by a certain, a different system. And it was very, very difficult to understand how they were being paid. Um, and we tried to explain this over the course of, of the podcast. And, and you can kind of get the sense of why uh, the lawyers who were representing them in the class action suit were concerned that the judges wouldn't understand um, and and why they were kind of walking through it step by step by step to try to explain to the court and why when they finally got to a jury, it kind of got it all, all muddled up. The juries didn't quite get it. Under a visa program like that, are there different stipulations that maybe allow for a more uh, vague system of pay and that doesn't necessarily line up with labor laws, you know, for U.S. citizens. I'm just, I, I don't know. I'm just curious what you know. I mean, they have to be paid a certain amount yeah. per hour, but <laughs> somehow they found a loophole to make that, to obfuscate They always that. make yeah. loopholes. And in mm-hmm. fact, in the end, the only way that we focus on one particular, uh, company, it was actually owned by the Fonhuls, two brothers, who were originally two Cuban brothers who fled to Cuba uh, when Castro took over and their family lost everything. They were enormous, like fabulously rich in Cuba, o- literally owned a palace there um, and uh, fled uh, to the United States. Uh, they own U.S. sugar. Um, and we focus on them because they were the ones that kept the the class action lawsuit going even when we suspect that their their legal fees exceeded the amount that they would have had to pay the workers in back pay. Um, and they ended up having to rely on an, an outdated law that dated back hundreds of years to like colonial America hmm. in order to... <laughs> In order to avoid having to pay back pay to the to the workers, atrocious, unclean. Can, yeah. can you tell us just about how that class action lawsuit began? Like who started it, and how how did it how did it come to fruition? So there were some public interest lawyers who had been representing um, immigrant workers in Texas and other areas, and they got a tip from. Uh, an anonymous person <laughs> mm-hmm. who who said 
you know, these people are being underpaid. And, you know, it was very, very difficult to even speak to the workers. Um, and they described how difficult it was to even get close to them. The sugar companies prevented you from even speaking to these workers, even getting close to them in the fields. They would have security guards um, escort you off of the uh, of the property if you even got close to the dorms um, and it, you couldn't even talk to them. Um, and so it it took quite a long time for them to even get this case going. But they eventually were able to. They had to make a lot of trips to Jamaica to even get clients for this. And the, I just want to shout out one of my, my favorite moments in some of these interviews you do is when we learn that one of these lawyers, uh, he's, he's very steady and very like affable and not shaken by a lot of things that would terrify ordinary people. Like he gets a... Um, some kind of death threat one time, and he replies, well, I, I'm not in town right now, but I, I, I can give you a call when I'm back. Uh, and that's, uh, wow. this is the guy I sometimes referred to as the Harvard idiot in Texas. Uh-huh. Yeah, a guy calls him up and says, hey, come down to my property. I need to, I'm, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> come on over. And uh, he goes, well, I'm not so town. good for me. Uh, <laughs> I maybe we could pencil it in. I'm yeah. out of town. I can't make it. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> Amazing. Well, and also, the forgive me, I'm, I'm blanking on the name, but the journalist that he kind of starts the story off, who has had a history as a rock musician and uh, various other kind of occupations before he landed in journalism, he is told basically you're never going to talk to one of these people. You're never yeah. going to talk to a cane cutter. And he goes, try me. And then, mm-hmm. and, it, and it is difficult, uh, you know, by design, but he, he eventually does, you know, cut through um, no pun intended there. either. But how, how are they able to keep people from these workers, you know, and keep them so isolated in a way that just frankly really does feel like, Slavery, like having kept humans, you know, that are they're, they're kept away from anyone that could possibly help them. I mean, I got to tell you, even, you know, even we tried to even talk to, to the either one of the Van Hools, Alfie and Pepe Van Hool um, of, of U.S. Sugar. And it just is so striking that if you have money in America, you don't have to answer questions ever about anything. Mm-hmm. That's just the truth. Um, we have a long montage in there of how how hard we tried to talk to one of them. We tried even just running into them outside their building. We went, I went to their home. I went to their yacht. Uh, we went to their building. We tried even just dropping off a letter at the front desk of their office. We couldn't even get to the receptionist. That's um, nuts. Yeah. Y- you, if you have money in America, you don't have to answer for the th- decisions you make or what you do. And this is, I want to stay at this point for a second too, because the the incredibly sophisticated stonewalling here, it does sound like something out of a thriller novel for a lot of folks. You're listening and you can say, well, this sounds a little larger than life, but um, I believe it was the documentarian, uh, Stephanie, and... Uh, Alec, the journalists, they're, they're working in this field. They're, they're trying to talk with these workers, as you said, before the, before the legal case and the traveling to Jamaica. And these, guys, uh, these folks end up having to resort basically to tradecraft. They have to pull some spycraft moves just to get in. Uh, the one thing that struck me 
I really wanted to ask you about is our documentarian here is very explicit and very, um, very certain that the sugar companies use their influence to push law enforcement, right? To intimidate them and harass them. And she's got to keep picking up, like she's switching rental cars out, which is another spy move. Did, did you or your team ever feel unsafe or, or threatened in your investigation? Cause it seems like these guys are not playing around. So you're talking about Stephanie Black, who eventually made the documentary H2 worker. And yeah, she was followed and she had to be very, very, very careful. We did not have that uh, experience. Now I will say, um, we knew that happened to her. (laughs) And so we weren't, you know, we didn't, we were already prepared. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like we already knew going in that, uh, to take to take measures and we got in we got out we we made short trips we made two day trips you know um how many burner phones did you go through celeste i didn't go through <laughs> burner phones <laughs> um you know and uh, you know, and I'm not Stephanie Black. I'm Celeste Headley, a member of SAG-AFTRA, a uh, <laughs> longtime NPR. You know, mm-hmm. come at me. Um, yeah. D- try me. Yeah. You know, uh, bring it on. Um, so uh, I'd like to see see a try. Um, so um, that is just a different world for you. And, and, you know, to a certain extent, it's the work of somebody like Stephanie Black and, and Alec, Um I can build on their work, right? That um, then you bring in somebody with who has a little bit more standing that makes it possible to where then they are going to end up with somebody who has a little bit, um, uh, not equal power, but a little bit more standing to where nice try, Buster. More difficult um, and, to oppress. Yeah, or a suppress. little bit more difficult to push around. Um, and then, of course, Big Sugar, you know, we have... Uh, I Heart Media behind us. We have Imagine Audio behind us. Like, nice. What up? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, let, <laughs> Give it a go. Well, you also <laughs> is 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 Vanity Fair a part of this at all, or is that just Marie Brenner? Vanity pre- Fair published the original article, um, and so and you know Marie Brenner is no joke, <laughs> right? I mean, we're talking about a legendary journalist, and so. No, absolutely nothing in that original article was not fact-checked a billion times and absolutely um, watertight, rock solid, (laughs) you know, Um, and, you know, including the very opening scene. I mean, the opening, just to prove how much power these brothers have, the Fonhole brothers, the opening scene in Marie Brennan's article is where Bill Clinton is breaking up with Monica Lewinsky. Mm -hmm. Like he has called her into the Oval Office to break up with her. And his aide calls him and says, there's a phone call for you. And Bill Clinton says, I'm doing something. And he says, it's Alfie Von Huel. And he says, I'll take that call. (laughs) Oh, wow. (laughs) That's how powerful these two guys are. And it just is there to show you the fact that for so many generations, Sugar has been operating under the cloak, the shadow (laughs) of darkness and manipulating our lives. Um, and this podcast, like the title of this podcast is perfect. It is stuff they don't want us to know about. 
um, in so many ways. It is time. It's time for a reckoning for the sugar industry. It really is. You, you get into this in the podcast, too, but just the idea of sugar as part of our diet and just the way it's been pushed on, like, children's cereals and, you know, the marketing behind all of it, let, let alone all of the, the dark goings-on behind the scenes into how it actually, you know, comes to be in those products. And uh, I think it's fascinating. And uh, you draw a really interesting parallel between, you know, the history of slavery in our country, you know, and and those conditions that didn't change a hell of a lot. Like a lot of things like, you know, we just sort of converted uh, prison labor to what we were getting out of slave labor. You see a lot of these loopholes in American history. Can you talk a little bit about that and that parallel that you kind of see, you know, into that transition between, you know, doing it kind of uh, through the slave labor, the slave trade, and then kind of figuring out a way around it, but basically keeping it the same. I mean, well, first of all, slavery always was about control of labor. You know, racism was invented in order to justify control of labor, um, not the other way around. Um, and so there is a direct line between sugar and uh, slavery, and it is still wage slavery to today. You cannot separate the sugar on our table from slavery. You can't. Um, and so today, even today, the, the ways in which uh, we have manipulated the public. Uh, and even if you look at the ways, you know, you, you think about, you know, the reckoning that came for tobacco, the reckoning that has come for the, the pharma, pharmaceutical industry in a small way, um, in the ways that they have um, manipulated even science. Um, and that has happened in a, in a certain way with like um, eugenics in the way that they manipulated things to, you know, to try to make it look like racism was justified scientifically. That was, again, to try to manipulate labor, to say that certain races were designed to labor, right? That's connected to sugar. <laughs> they were designed to stand in a field and cut sugar cane all day. But also in terms of the science of our food and the way we eat, you can even just go back just a couple decades and look at the way that they manipulated our sugar uh, science science to say that it was not sugar that was making us mm -hmm. fat. It was fat, right? Oh, you can right, find right. You can find these ads that say if sugar it makes you obese, then why are there so many skinny kids? Kids eat more sugar I mean, than anybody. Fat is called fat. It makes right. you clearly it makes you fat. <laughs> and now we know that there's good fat, and there you know we have things like keto diet and all of that. You know, they I mean, it's, even had yeah. ads that at that um, peddled sugar as a way to control your appetite. They said sugar might just be the willpower you need to curb your appetite. They had sugar advertising sugar as the quick energy you need yes. to resist eating too much. They had um, advertised sugar as a healthy way to eat less. Um, they had advertised sugar as not dangerous to your teeth, right? Um, so there are so many ways in which they have manipulated the, the American public. They put sugar into literally everything. You mentioned before that I tried to get sugar out of my diet. I a, didn't have the time for it because it, I had to end up making all of my own stuff. It's a and second job. Yeah. And I didn't have the money. It became so expensive to try to buy all the specialty things that I needed in order to get rid of sugar. It's in everything. It's in everything. We're going to pause for a word from our sponsor and then we'll return with Celeste Headley. From BBC Radio 4. 
Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Attention, true crime enthusiasts. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals, your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. And we're back. Celeste, is there a they in the stuff they don't want you to know of sugar? Is there like an alliance of some sort or a group, like a lobbying group or anything? I mean, yeah, there's the trade industries. I mean, there's the there's a very small number of sugar companies that make up the sugar industry. Um, and there's the lobbying group for sugar. Uh, there was a response from the, the sugar trade group uh, to our podcast saying that, you know, this class action suit happened a long time ago and now they're very modernized and they employ a lot of people. All of those things are true. Um, <laughs> but, it's quite but diplomatic. The- but if it's a if it's a group like that, they are the one. So I, I guess there are individuals, like you said, Alfie was able to get Bill Clinton on the phone as an individual, powerful human being. But it does feel like if you've got a group that is making a lot of money, subsidizing their product with, you know, super cheap labor, at least for a long time, and with government uh, funding, right, you can probably spend a lot more money lobbying, which I'm assuming that's what happens. Um, I don't know. That seems... That to me just feels it's the kind of creepy thing that we talk about a lot on this show where a a large group, a, a fairly small group in this instance can wield so much power with lawmakers and even with the executive branch. Uh, it You still got that sense? Yeah, I mean, this is a small group of people. And let me tell you how bad of a deal this is for the United States taxpayer. It's so bad that the Cato Institute Call, uh, referred to them as a cartel. Not um, surprising. They, they sure act like one. I mean, so uh, anyway. We give billions of dollars to, to the U.S. sugar industry to plant sugar. We pay them billions to plant it, to grow it, as though it's not 
a profitable industry, right? Like as though people wouldn't, we have to prioritize it, right? It's not like it's kale. People are going to buy sugar. <laughs> you know, you don't have to incentivize it. So we pay them billions to plant it. We buy them yachts. <laughs> no. Then <laughs> sugar is more expensive in the United States than pretty much every other wealthy nation in the world. Wow. So we're paying them billions. Then we're paying more for the product in the grocery store. And they are then carrying out environmental uh, disasters like burning down their uh, fields and the environmental costs, on the other hand, for example, the Everglades are total wrecks, are probably going to end up costing the U.S. taxpayers another billions, if not trillions, plus the climate change costs. So there's another cost as well. And then you come to the healthcare costs, because when you cover towns in ash, you're talking about a massive cost. And then, of course, there's the human cost. So... Well, the healthcare well, cost of, of the consuming the product itself. Let's not forget. I mean, oh my which god, which again? <laughs> yeah, which again? So if you start counting this all up, it's a it's a pretty bad deal. Mm-hmm. Why are well, we doing it's, it? It's a good deal it. for the uh, sugar barons since they're still around. <laughs> but that's like one of the questions, you know, like how how does this deal come to be right you know what i mean like how why does, don't we just say enough is it well, just in the ni- campaign in, contributions it started out in world war ii because we were afraid that um you know we were all bought in on the fact that sugar was a necessary was needed for energy that especially for our soldiers that they would need that that cheap energy burst in order to keep their energy going for all the athletic you know things that they were doing okay so they put all this money into the sugar industry uh, to subsidize it, to make sure that we wouldn't ever have to rely on other countries in order to keep sugar in the United States. So that's how it started in World War II. And it has just kept going because the sugar barons have continued to grease, to butter both sides of these bread, giving very liberally to both the Republicans and the Democrats to such an extent that it has just been seen as a sacred cow. And also the American public just has, look, as we say in, as we say in the podcast, the, the farm bill is just not a sexy piece of legislation. No. Right, People right. don't pay any attention to this. And that's really one of the major purposes of this podcast. And it's why we brought it out this year, because the farm bill only comes up for reconsideration every five years. And it's up for reconsideration right now. And it's time. It is time to stop paying billions of dollars to people to grow this product that they would grow anyway and then pay for it again in the grocery store and pay for it again to in, in the environment and pay for it again at the doctor's office and pay for it again, at, again and again and again and again and again. I wonder if we were paying so much more at the grocery store. Let's say I, I, I don't know exactly how much, you know, a certain amount of sugar costs right now. But if if that was doubled let's say, or even tripled. I wonder if that would in like really have a ripple effect, a beneficial effect to people not using sugar as much at home and also would increase the price of, you know, highly sugared products that are giving us, well, they're giving us all heart disease. And as you said, diabetes and fatty liver disease and all these things. I, I don't know. I think you, I Celeste, I can, I could see that working really well. 
Yeah, maybe so. I mean, the U.S. has guaranteed sugar growers a price of sugar for a really, really long time. They've guaranteed that they will get a certain price for sugar. Um, I mean, yeah. I mean, but look at this. Look at the look at the uproar when when uh, Bloomberg tried to put a sugar tax on soda. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Remember yeah, yeah. that? Mm-hmm. The vice tax didn't uh, didn't jibe with the public, and there were several there were several PR firms more than willing to push back against Bloomberg's move, and they somehow had a lot of money to do it. Just yeah. saying. <laughs> Just pointing yeah. that part out. Yeah. These 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 groundswell of consumer anger about the, sure yeah <laughs> um well what are we going to do besides like if we're not putting sugar in everything if we're taxing all the sugar what are we going to use aspartame i don't know if we, everybody's heard and the who is is coming out again saying hey guys maybe aspartame's not a great idea and then the fda says no it's fine we're the ones who approved it it's good uh, we but, you gotta- know, there's <laughs> We got a call, right? The FDA didn't reply until they checked in with some folks. It's also not the same. I mean, the idea of a diet soda exists because it is an alternative to sugar, you know? So it's like, you can't, all sodas can't be diet soda. Then then what do you have to compare it to? Then when, what do you get to have for a treat? You know, I mean, it's just so foundationally, you know, um, entrenched in our culture, like with the culinary cooking shows, baking shows, all of this stuff. No one's going to just stop using sugar and switch to. I mean, it's like I think that genie's already out of the bottle. I don't know. But you know what? I will say this. Um, Having gone through, I mean, I went without sugar basically for uh, six months and I will say that it was hard. But I will also say that surprisingly it didn't take me very long to sort of lose my taste for sugar and realize mm-hmm. that uh, pretty quickly you start realizing that you can suddenly taste the real taste of things. Yeah. You know, what was what was it like when you had when you, did you have anything that you ate like on month seven or something where you thought, whoa, how much sugar is in this? Yeah. Like, first of all, there's things that have sugar in them, like beef jerky, like tea. A tea does not need sugar. Um, uh, things like bread. Why the f*** does bread have <laughs> sugar in it? Um, there's all kinds of things. Chicken nuggets. Why the f*** <laughs> does <laughs> it's true. Sorry. chicken nuggets have sugar in them? And, and people put sugar in Italian dressing. Yeah. <laughs> the f***. You know, there are so many things that have sugar in them. And then when you start taking them out, you're like, oh, this tastes so much better when it's not f-ing sweet. <laughs> it's so much fun like, to hear you use f bomb, Celeste. Yeah, it's, fun. Like, it's, it's a delight. Like what the holy? <laughs> my, uh, my friends who are from other parts of the world—that's one of their main complaints. They say I can't buy any bread in the U.S. that isn't somehow also cake. Yeah, like what the like exactly. And when you start eating bread that tastes like, I don't know, bread, mm-hmm. like it, it, it's, it, I, and I will say that that has lasted for me. Like, A, That's I good. make all my own dressings. I do make my own bread because like, what the f***? But what about like natural sugars? There's natural sugars in fruits and, and things. You know, there are ways to get a similar effect just by, you know, the natural sugars that are contained within, you know, even like. Oh, yeah, of course. But in order to use those in your like your baking and things, you have to buy. 
And also, in order to use, in order to get those to use in your baking, you have to like track down these manufacturers who are not connected to this like wage slavery, blah, 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 blah. Where there's like the company called Wholesome that are like, as implied by the name, not connected to this whole horrifying industry but you can you know, see the supply chain you can actually relatively yeah. expensive I'll, I'll put it to you this way the u.s economy loses a billion dollars a year because of the u.s sugar program a, a billion dollars a year and and w- some economists estimate that the u.s sugar program causes somewhere between 17,000 to 20,000 people to become unemployed on an annual basis i guess i guess that's where i don't understand is like doesn't seem like we're in the business of losing a billion dollars a year. You know, the government's pretty stingy for the most part when it comes to things like that. Like, where is this hostage situation taking place? Like, where who is holding the gun to Uncle Sam's head that is forcing us to continue with this horrible deal that, that is across the board horrible, that it seems to be quantifiably bad? So as your the title of your show implies... Uh, this is stuff they don't want you to know. This is not how they present it. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Right? You know, politicians also don't read the fine print. And that's not how they present it. They instead say, this is how many people they employ. We're just farmers. <laughs> we're, we're just American farmers. We are, if you read the Alfie Van Hool and Peppy Van Hool story, they are immigrants who made their way up through their own grit and they're the they're the classic American dream story. That's their story. That's good PR. You know, we should call Pixar uh, and get that one made. But that's also that's also so intentionally, so insidiously, and purposely misleading. You know, I'm really glad you mentioned the idea of the politicians interacting with quote unquote farm interest because I I don't think a lot of Americans are aware just how monopolized that has become. Like every time you, I, I hear a politician of any ideological stripe talk about um, what, you know, working for small farmers, I have to try not to laugh because what we need to realize is so many of those quote unquote small farms were long ago bought out by larger, larger interests that have a lot of weight to your point. They have a lot of weight to pull. Do you think part of the problem not just comes from like, legacy and tradition and dependency from World War II, but could part of it be the um, relatively constrained goal horizon of politicians? Like how, you know, it's it's politically, it's very difficult for a congressperson, someone on a local level, or even, even the president, honestly, to really support a decision that is not going to bear fruit for, uh, you know, within two to four years. Right. So is is that part of it? The time horizon? Does that make it tougher for them to to break the cycle? I'm maybe I mean, perhaps I I think it's more about the fact that politics voters, homo sapiens always has and ever will be more motivated by fear um, than positive uh, feelings always has been and ever will be. Um, That's our species. And that's our neurology and that's how the amygdala works. Um, and therefore, uh, politicians know that they can drum up, um, voters by talking about, um, Americans and farmers and the threat to the American way. And, um, 
and that's how they can get voters to the polls. Um, and they can simplify everything down into very, very simple terms. And they don't have to talk about the phosphorus runoff from <laughs> the sugarcane fields and how that is causing sawgrass to completely overwhelm the Everglades and ruin the environment and how that's leading to climate change and how that's going to cost trillions of dollars to combat and how that's going to fall on the the, the most vulnerable in us to pay for and how they don't have the money to pay for it and have that that's a result of inequality and blah, blah, blah. blah. I mean, you know, who has the time to explain all of that and who cares? Isn't there also another way of, of creating sugar by processing sugar beets that doesn't involve harvesting sugar cane in this brutal labor system? Um, are sugar beets more environmentally friendly? Not necessarily so. Um, that's not... It, it, I will say this, uh, sugar production from D Dutch beet sugar, which I assume is what you mean, does produce quite a bit less CO2 and, and those little fine particles that get into the air than cane sugar. It also uses a lot less water. So yes, beet sugar is much more sustainable than cane sugar. Um, is it, does it take less land? I'm not sure. I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not sure. I only bring it up because um, you, you'll probably remember the story that was very big in Georgia in the early aughts, the Imperial Sugar Refinery explosion uh, yes. that was a product of poor conditions here at home, you know, where the stuff is uh, being refined and, and created and put into the packages that we then find on the shelves. I believe, you know, upwards of a, a dozen uh, people were killed and, and they were, you know, hugely um, in, injured if they weren't killed. There was a, a whole big story because where I was covering at the time there was a big burn unit uh, at the um, at the medical college of Georgia which I'm sorry, I'm sorry the um, it was at the time called like Augusta State University there was a medical facility associated with it so a lot of those folks were you know sent there but um, I, I don't know if that was an isolated event or are there other cases of refineries having unsafe conditions as well that you've I there are you many this. of them mm -hmm. you know there are many of them I mean we're <sighs> You know, anytime that you have that amount of particles going off into the air, anytime that you have something that is a refinery, which always means um, heat, <laughs> um, which always means grinding, there's there's going to be unsafe conditions. And anytime that you have poorly paid workers and a lot of them, you know, there's going to be danger. You know, I, I mean, I think that and, and not only that, but anytime that you have industries that are pushing for less regulation, um, and you have um, a government bodies where they are s severely understaffed, and that includes the, the government body that oversees agricultural production. It's, there's a lot of danger. Okay, let's take a quick break, hear a word from our sponsor, and then jump right back in with Celeste. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Attention, true crime enthusiast, searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. 
With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals, your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. And we've returned. Before we move on, because there is a there there is a twist here. There's also another show that we we definitely want to talk a little bit about uh, that has <laughs> that is also helmed by you, Celeste. Uh, one of the big questions that I think is on everybody's mind is when you listen to Big Sugar, uh, which um, in my experience is is the best investigation of its kind in this industry. Um, when you when we when we listen to this, what do we hope? people can take away from the show what is there we're all about empowerment right so knowing the problems of the sugar industry are there things or steps that you know jane and john q public or whatever can take to help mitigate or address these injustices i mean i hope the first thing that people do is call their representative and their senator about mm-hmm. the farm bill Okay. First thing, First thing. Uh, the farm bill is up for reconsideration right now, and it's time to take action. It only comes up for reconsideration, as I said, every five years. So I'm looking at my watch here. <laughs> the time is now. <laughs> yes. And you're saying as it's written currently, it's just it, 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 way too many dispensations for these big companies. It makes it way too easy for them to get around, you know, safe conditions. And, and you were pushing for rewriting it in a way that would take them to task or that would in some way improve things? So when we talk about um, how much money, how much is in the farm bill for U.S. sugar, and when we talk about the fact that there's billions for U.S. sugar in the farm bill, um, then what we're talking about is billions in your money. (laughs) Right. For the U.S. sugar program. Subsidies, I got (laughs) it. That's your money. So when you also hear... Uh, politicians say we don't have money to ho- ho- house the homeless. Uh, when you say that we don't have money to for schools to pay teachers more, to pay firefighters more, we don't have money to build new to resurface uh, highways or build new bridges. And um, but we have money to give billions to U.S. Sugar and to Alfie von Hool, who owns a yacht that's worth I think over thirty or forty million dollars. Um, it's time to call your representative and your senator. Yeah. And it's really important. You, it's really important. You do it as an individual, whoever you are listening right now, because there are so many advocacy groups that are going to be a part of that farm bill fighting against the things that are probably in all of our best interest. Yeah, exactly. And you know, your money 
it's your money. (laughs) (laughs) It's your money. You like the yacht. You should like the yacht, folks. We paid for it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we recently did a panel with some folks uh, about criminal justice reform, and there were several lawyers on the panel whose job it is to, to seek this kind of stuff. And they pointed out that these calls matter, that, that if, if enough people call in and it makes some noise, it's going to change the conversation to some degree. You are not powerless. So I just think that's it's easy to feel overwhelmed and completely, you know, uh, like your hands are tied. But these things do do matter. And that yeah, they a- really do. That agency that we all have listening, if you're located in the United States, that is arguably another thing they don't want you to know is that it uh, your voice does matter. And um, there's a there's a really beautiful moment where you hear people in these advocacy groups inevitably say that something like what you're saying, Celeste, you know, it might feel it, it might feel like you're just emptying an ocean with a bucket or spitting in the wind when you are that one person making that one call. But if we move in mass, then we are not one person. Right. And I, I even heard um, an old friend of mine who used to be in the Beltway would say like you would, you get one call, right. And then you get, 12 calls and now something has to happen, especially if they all come in a close amount of time. Um, so it is, it is at least inspiring to know that we, the public are not powerless in this situation, even though we have been brainwashed across generations, I would argue. Uh, we've, and, been, we've been mouthwashed. <laughs> we've been, there it is. <laughs> worth it. Also, Listerine, halitosis, story for another day. But uh, we, should, we should absolutely talk. We would be remiss, remiss if we did not mention another project you have, you have helmed and created that is of immense interest to every longtime listener of stuff they don't want you to know. Celeste, could you tell us a bit about the Freeway Phantom? Yeah, speaking of things that you actually can do something about, I mean, that's another thing that is a message of Freeway Phantom. The Freeway Phantom is about the the first serial killer in Washington, D.C. that that we know of, even though most people don't know about the Freeway Phantom. And the reason we don't know about the Freeway Phantom is because he murdered Black girls in a poor and uh, low-income neighborhoods. That's why people have never heard of him. He murdered uh, as many people as a son of Sam. And yet these were young, I mean, as young as like 10 and 12 years old, uh, Black girls in in, um, low and uh, low-income neighborhoods and and middle-income neighborhoods um, in Washington, D.C. in the early 1970s. He was never caught. And um, the reason I say that uh, people could have changed that is because if if these murders had been given the attention that they deserved, even at the time, um, if word had gotten out, um, they they maybe could have kept some of these girls safe. Uh, these girls were snatched off the street in broad daylight as they walked a block, maybe two blocks away from their homes in some cases, as they were walking to the grocery store. If if parents had known, these were not neglectful parents. These were not um, bad kids. These were good kids in their school gym uniforms in their own neighborhoods. Um, and uh, these were lives that needed to matter and didn't, and they were forgotten. Um, so this is one of the reasons why, not just for me, but for the entire team at, uh, Tenderfoot TV and at iHeart, 
this is why this is so personal for us and so important for us is because these we need to even 50 years later their names deserve to be said <laughs> and remembered it is important that um, these girls lives matter today as much as they did then and that it means something that um, we understand why uh, law enforcement and every community and every media outlet needs to take these things seriously. When a child disappears, when somebody disappears, that's important and it needs attention and it needs immediate attention within those first 24 hours. And there's that's something every neighborhood can take part in. You know, um, one of the things that, that people talk about is that one of the ways that you keep everybody safe, especially children, is by getting to know your neighbors. Learn their names. Learn who lives in those homes. That's a tiny, small thing that you can do to keep people safe just on your own street. And so when we're talking about these little things that you can do, that's one thing that you can do today. Stop When you stop listening here, walk down your street and learn who lives in your neighborhood. Yeah. Easy peasy. Done. And, and like, think about how that increases, like, I don't know, the, the community value of just where you live, like being able to help your neighbor if they need some help. Maybe they will help you if you need some help. That's amazing. I love it that message. Also makes things cooler, too, because then you get into like block parties and, <laughs> uh, you know, you can hang out, which I love. I love hanging out anywhere where I don't have to pay money to be there. So that's hey, that's, that's cool. That's a huge, cool part of uh, block parties for me and barbecues. But I, I would say also um, on, on a little bit more serious note about that, it does help us clock anomalous occurrences much more quickly, right? You know your neighbors, you know um, when someone's a stranger. And, and that's not to, you know, inculcate paranoia in everyone, but it it, it is it's a form of being aware of your surroundings and Celeste that also what a bookend, because that also goes back to uh, some of your longstanding work about human connection and communication with people, you know, and I, I, um, I have to say, listening to, um, listening to freeway phantom, the, the infuriating thing is just as you describe, you know what I mean? They, they, I don't know if you could say law enforcement dropped the ball because that would be like saying they picked it up in the first place. You know, to one extent, they worked hard. I mean, I went through the boxes of evidence. They they interviewed hundreds of people. They followed, they did, they followed leads. That is absolutely the case. But they also immediately made assumptions that these parents were neglectful. They immediately made assumptions that these 12-year-old girls might have run away with their boyfriends. They made uh, comments about these girls being war wearing provocative clothing when they were in their school gym uniforms. Um, so yeah, did they drop the ball? Yeah, they also took these girls' lives lightly because they were black, because they were living in poor neighborhoods. They made assumptions about them, and then they immediately got distracted by the Vietnam protests, which were a bunch of I don't, again, I'm not trying to stereotype, but for the most part, they were a, a whole lot of uh, middle-class college white kids protesting the war, which was important. It was absolutely important, but it also took um, 
incredibly needed attention away from these girls' lives who had been murdered. And again, he kept killing. And if they had gotten the attention and resources that they needed, they might have saved the girls who got killed later and later and later and later. They could have caught this guy and prevented him from killing yet more girls. And this is, it, it wouldn't, this story wouldn't be important. We wouldn't be doing this podcast today if this weren't St- be still if this weren't still happening yes now well let's let's talk because i think it goes back to community and it's a parallel uh full disclosure i'm an ep on freeway phantom uh but it's a problem i saw with atlanta monster and the, the cases with the atlanta missing and murdered where there's a distrust of those who are supposed to be taking uh protecting your community right a complete distrust so that when even if somebody knows something and was an eyewitness to a child being abducted, it's highly unlikely that that person is going to come forward and actually speak with a police officer and give that story because there's distrust between that individual and that institution. Um, do you, it feels to me like that is still a major issue. What, what, what have you found, Celeste? Yeah, and I think that's also the case. And I forgive me, um, Matt. May, I've forgotten now how much the reward is up to now. Um, it, it is now at three hundred thousand dollars because it was uh, yeah. matched. Yeah, by iHeart and Tenderfoot, mm-hmm. right? So the reason for that is because we know for sure because we did these interviews with members of the community. We know that they did not tell the police things. We know they didn't talk to the police. Um, In some cases, we know they weren't forthcoming with the police. And so we know somebody knows something and that person may still, 50 years on, be alive. We also know that they may not still be in Washington, D.C., which is why it's so important uh, that this podcast be heard by as many people as possible over the country. Maybe this person's living in Oregon now. Um, They may be living somewhere else entirely. And we want them to hear this podcast and call and get in touch because somebody knows something and they may not realize that that piece of information may be exactly the piece of information that could bring closure to these families. And so that's why the reward has been doubled uh, because these families deserve to know what happened to their daughters. They deserve to know. You know, I mean, how horrible to not only lose your daughters this way and have their bodies discarded like garbage on the side of a road, but then to not actually have answers about who, why, what happened to them, you know, and and have so little invested into getting those answers that 50 years on, they still have have no resolution. And so that's why um, the production companies doubled that reward is because we know somebody knows something and it's worth trying. It's, it's worth, it's worth trying. Agreed. And that's maybe that's the message that we take with us at the close of our conversation today. It is possible to make a difference as an individual And it's not only possible, but it is one of the best and most noble things a person can attempt to do. Uh, So we want to thank you again, Celeste, for all your work bringing this justice to light. You know, these shows are coming out back to back to back. So I can only imagine what 
crazy pandemonium your calendar looks like, and, and you've made time for us and all our fellow conspiracy realists, where can people go to learn more, not just about Big Sugar, not just about Freeway Phantom, but about all your many other projects? I mean, for the meantime, Twitter, maybe. You got a couple weeks left. You're not on threads yet? That's no. another I mean, thread of conversation. Okay. I, have a, I have a website, um, but because it's only me updating it, it is very irregularly updated. <laughs> but um, yeah, the, 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 the social media I most likely update is Instagram, which is mostly pictures of my dog. And in the interim... Uh, Twitter, but we'll see how long it takes till that implodes. For sure. And listen to Big Sugar and Freeway Phantom. You can find them wherever you get your podcasts or your favorite shows. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, really, like, listen to them now. Freeway Phantom, I think in this moment when you're hearing this episode, you can listen to every episode of Freeway Phantom as well as some of the bonus episodes that are coming mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. One of which uh, just dropped this week, I believe. Uh, that would be, I, I don't even want to give the title because we're not going to spoil it. But uh, yes, thank you so much, Celeste. Uh, we can't wait to learn more about Big Sugar. And here's hoping we can make a difference here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This was uh, such a fantastic conversation, you guys. I know we went a lot of places, and for everybody listening, even though we talked in depth about Big Sugar and the sugar industry, there is so much more in the show. You really should check it out. Definitely, and also check out Freeway Phantom because there's, I mean, it's a winding story that takes you a lot of different places, and there's a new profile of the killer inside that show and it's worth your time and we're also i I guess since in full disclosure you know as you said matt you ep tenderfoot shows including freeway phantom uh we also you might hear some familiar voices cameoing in a a couple of those episodes all of us are in all of us are in freeway phantom Mm-hmm. I think that's right. Yeah, it's a pleasure to work on it. A uh, real pleasure to talk to Celeste. Been a big fan of hers, as we all have for quite some time. A really u- uniquely talented journalist and uh, storyteller, mm-hmm. and uh, really generous with her time today. So we thank her uh, specifically, and we thank you for tuning in. Uh, if you want to get at us online, you can do so. Uh, we exist at the handle Conspiracy Stuff on Twitter um, and YouTube and Facebook. Conspiracy Stuff Show on Instagram and TikTok. If you'd like to call us with some thoughts, you can. Our number is one eight three three S T D W Y T K. You've got three minutes. It's voicemail. Give yourself a cool name and let us know if we can use your message and voice on the air. If you don't want to do that, why not send us a good old-fashioned email? We read everything we get. We are conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is 
is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Attention, true crime enthusiast. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals. Your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. 